uh, is followed by two peaceful rulers in Israel. And I'm not sure how you pronounce the one guy. It's D-O-D-O. Is that Dodo or Dodu or who, whatever? But anyway, he ruled 23 years, and he was a good ruler. Jair followed him, and he ruled 22 years. And Jair had 30 sons who rode donkeys. Now, it makes a point to tell us that his son rode donkeys. Well, donkeys were like police cars in that day. <laughs> And these 30 sons were deputies enforcing the peace uh, there in uh, Gilead, in, in uh, Israel. And we see, however, after these two good leaders, Israel falls back into their same old, same old of doing evil in the sight of the Lord, serving Baal and Ashtoreth. And God is angry with them. His anger is hot against them. And God allows the Philistines and the Ammonites to persecute Israel, even to now rule over Israel. And this persecution by the Ammonites and by the Philistines, it lasts 18 years before Israel begins to truly cry out to the Lord again in repentance. Let me read you Judges 10, 13, and 14. And this is God speaking to Israel. You have forsaken me and served other gods. Therefore, I would deliver you no more. Go and cry out to the gods which you have chosen. Let them deliver you in your time of distress. Israel is now crying out to God. And in verse 16 of chapter 10, we hear God declare, he's just said, go to your other gods. Now we hear God say, my soul can no longer endure the misery of Israel. The very nature, the very character of God is exposed in this verse. It's one of those treasures that we see there in verse 16 the people israel is repenting they have put away their foreign gods and uh, took them out and buried them whatever they did with them and now they want to serve god and they're trying to worship god but we read god's anger is hot against them for they have fallen into the worship of Baal again, and God is angry with them. But as they begin to truly repent and to begin to turn away from these idols and these foreign gods, we see the soul of God come forth. <clears throat> Excuse me. We see his compassion, his character that says he no longer can endure the misery that Israel is going through. And that misery is they are separated from their God who loves them. Have you ever caught yourself in a sin cycle? <laughs> Perhaps repeating some sin. Don't have to be a grievous sin necessarily, but just doing the same old, same old over and over again, and you just feel so 
exasperated before God. Good news. Repent. <laughs> Turn away from sin. Make no provisions to sin. Seek out the Lord in worship and worship him in spirit and in truth. And then you can enjoy the right standing with God of being forgiven. The very nature of God and his forgiveness is to relieve us of the misery of our sin. That's his nature towards us. And as we read this verse, it reminds us that it's the goodness of God that leads us to repentance. I'm glad of that. I'm glad God is good towards me and he's forgiving towards me. And let me read now uh, Judges 11, 1 through 10. Now Jephthah, the Gileadite, was a mighty man of valor, but he was the son of a harlot. And Gilead begot Jephthah. Gilead's wife bore sons, and when his wife's sons grew up, they drove Jephthah out and said to him, You shall no longer have an inheritance in our father's house. You are the son of another woman. Then Jephthah fled from his brothers and dwelt in the land of Tob. And worthless men banded together with Jephthah and went out raiding with him. It came to pass after a time that the people of Ammon made war against Israel. And so it was when the people of Ammon made war against Israel that the elders of Gilead went to get Jephthah from the land of Tob. Then they said to Jephthah, Come and be our commander, that we may fight against the people of Ammon. So Jephthah said to the elders of Gilead, Did you not hate me and, ex and expect me expel me, rather, from my father's house? Why have you come to me now when you are in distress? And the elders of Gilead said to Jephthah, This is why we have turned again to you now, that you may go with us and fight against the people of Ammon, and be our head over all the inhabitants of Gilead. So Jephthah said to the elders of Gilead, If you take me back home to fight against the people of Ammon, and the Lord delivers them to me, Shall I be your head? And the elders of Gilead said to Jephthah, The Lord will be a witness between us if we do not do according to your words. Jephthah, the son of a harlot, but he's a man of valor. Jephthah, he's having to overcome his heritage. And it's encouraging to any of us of ordinary birth. Not many of us enjoy the privilege of being born of royal bloodlines. Most of us are simply plain old Gentiles. <laughs> Jephthah, he's been banished from among his brothers, from among his family, because his brothers and his family don't want to share the family wealth with him. Because he's the son of a harlot. So Jephthah, he retreats. He goes to Tob, where only marauding scoundrels will dwell with him and be part of his uh, uh, cohorts. 
And Jephthah becomes a mob leader at Tob. And they're known as the Tob mob. I made that one up myself. <laughs> Verse 4. Meanwhile, Ammon, Israel's enemy, rises up and they make war against Israel. And the elders of Israel, they go to Jephthah and they plead with him. You know, be our man of war. Be our commander against the Ammonites. And he's not willing to lead Israel unless they swear that if he fights against Ammon and he is victorious, that Israel will then make him their leader. And the elders agree to this. Israel needs a tough fighting man of valor, and they seek out the meanest man they know, and that's Jephthah. But Jephthah, he's not so easily convinced, for he was expelled by these same people that now want him to be their leader. And, and he asked him, did you not hate me, you know? And now you're in distress and you want me to go out and fight for you? And they say, yep, that pretty much sums it up. <laughs> and we can get the wrong idea about Jephthah if it weren't for Hebrews chapter 11, verse 32. Now, you know, Hebrews 11 is the hall of faith where the writer of Hebrews brings out these characters of the Old Testament, men and women, and he tells how they were people of faith. And we find Jephthah sandwiched between Samson and King David. So he's mentioned among these great men. So we begin to see that Jephthah is indeed, he's a man of valor and he's a man of faith. Regardless of his pedigree. Jephthah agrees to lead and fight Israel. So he sends a message to the king of Ammon. And basically the message is, why do you seek war against us, Israel? Ammon's reply is, Israel took our land. And that's a flimsy excuse by the king of Ammon for war, for he wants to war against Israel. Jephthah then gives Ammon a history lesson. And that all these allegations by Ammon is summed up in verse 27 of chapter 11. And Jephthah says, May the Lord, the judge, render judgment this day between Israel and Ammon. But the king of Ammon, he's not ready to listen to the truth. He is bent on, he is determined on having war against Israel. And he won't be swayed by the truth of the matter. So let me read Judges 11, 29 through 33. Then the Spirit of the Lord came upon Jephthah, and he passed through Gilead and Manasseh, and he passed through Mizpah of Gilead, and from Mizpah of Gilead he advanced towards the people of Ammon. And Jephthah made a vow to the Lord and said, If you will indeed deliver the people of Ammon into my hands, then it will be whatever comes out of the doors of my house to meet me when I return in peace from the people of Ammon shall surely be the Lord's and I will offer it up as a burnt offering. So Jephthah 
advanced towards the people of Ammon to fight against them, and the Lord delivered them into his hands. And he defeated them from Aor, as far as Mineth, twenty cities to Abel, uh, all the way to Abel Kernanum, whatever that is, with a great slaughter. Thus the people of Ammon were subdued before the children of Israel. Jephthah makes a vow. Sometimes in our desperation to show the Lord how sincere we are about our commitment, about our dedication to him, we will make vows or we will make promises. And, and we really plan on fulfilling those vows and promising promises, but we usually depend on our strength of our flesh to do so. And that sets us up for defeat. It's not if we will break our word to the Lord, but it's when. It's when we will break our word. Let me read a passage from Matthew. Jesus had something to say about this on the Sermon on the Mount. And in Matthew 5, 33 through 37, Jesus is forbidding oaths. He's saying they're no-nos. And he says, again, you have heard it said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but you shall perform your oaths to the Lord. But I say to you, do not swear at all, neither by heaven, for it is God's throne, nor by the earth, for it is a footstool, nor by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. Nor shall you swear by your head, because you cannot make one hair white or black. But let your yes be yes, your no be no, for whatever is more than these is bad. No, is from the evil one. That's pretty drastic. First, God says, do not swear. Let you, you know, don't make promises. Don't make oaths to the Lord. If you insist on promising, you're only setting yourself up for trouble. But our flesh wants to show God how sincere we are. So we do fall into the trap of making promises. In verse 37, we read, let your yes be yes and your no, no. For whatever is more than these is of the evil one. Notice it's not simply an error in judgment, but it's from the evil one. You have been tempted to now try to persuade your flesh to do what is right, and our flesh, there's nothing really good about it. So with these instructions from Jesus, let's look again at Jephthah's vow. And that's in 1131 of Judges. And if ever there was a vow from the evil one, this vow of Jephthah certainly fits that mold. And he says, Whatever comes out of the doors of my house to meet me when I return from battle shall surely be the Lord's, and I will offer it up as a burnt offering. What a vow. Jephthah, he is victorious because the Lord is with him. 
and there is a great slaughter of the Ammonites, 20 cities in all. But now let me read you verses 34 through 36 of chapter 11. First, I'll take a drink. When Jephthah came to his house at Mizpah, there was his daughter coming out to meet him with timbrels and dancing, and she was his only child. Besides her, he had neither son nor daughter. And it came to pass when he saw her that he tore his clothes and said, Alas, my daughter, you have brought me very low. You are among those who trouble me, for I have given my word to the Lord, and I cannot go back on it. So she said to him, My father, if you have given your word to the Lord, do to me according to what has gone out of your mouth, because the Lord has avenged you of your enemies, the people of Ammon. Jephthah, he arrives home, and out comes his only daughter, his only child, and she's coming out of the front door, and she is celebrating. She's dancing. She's happy. She's playing the timbrels. Daddy has defeated the enemy. And Jephthah sees his daughter coming out of the house to greet him, and it brings him into mourning. And he says, Alas, my daughter, you have brought me low. You are among those who troubled me. Jephthah is blaming his daughter for his own foolish vow. Not only foolish, but it's an evil vow. And he considers himself now a great warrior and a conqueror. And a great warrior and a great conqueror, they can't go back on their word, can they? His pride will not allow him to go back on his foolish vow. Therefore, you, my only daughter, my only child, you must die because I have been foolish. It's your fault, daughter, not mine. You should not have come out of the house to celebrate. Jephthah's pride will not allow him to break his evil vow for somebody might have heard him make that vow. But his daughter didn't. For she said, hey, you got to do what you said. She had not heard the vow. And this is an instant where superstition has run amok in Jephthah this great man of valor, this warrior, he will not admit it. He can't say, I was very foolish and sinful even to make such a promise. He can't bring himself to say it. He can't admit the evil one deceived him into this crazy vow. His daughter gives him more credit than he deserves. Father, if you gave your word to the Lord, do unto me according to your vow, even if I must die. Wow, what loyalty. The thinking of Jephthah and Israel 
is expressed by his daughter. Israel has experienced victory over Ammon by the hand of God. And in the minds of Jephthah and in the minds of Israel, the vow was part of this reason for a victory. Totally wrong. Totally of the flesh. But that's the way they think. It's interesting that certain parts of our world today, parts of the Caribbean in particular, parts of South America, are caught up in superstition, black magic, along with religion. They kind of intermingle the two. Jephthah's daughter is willing to be a sacrifice because her dad made an evil promise, an evil vow to God. So, the question becomes, how important is sound Christian doctrine? Life and death. Life and death. Does it matter what we believe? Yeah, bubba. But I want to take you back. We can see very easily how foolish that vow was. But I want to take you back to verse 16. Verse 16 to me is one of those hidden gems in the book of Judges. Judges 10, 16. So they put away their foreign gods from among them, and they served the Lord. Now notice this. And God's soul could no longer endure the misery of Israel. Israel is God's chosen people. They are dear to God. As believers, we are God's chosen people also, and we are dear to the Lord. Now we're all familiar with John 3:16, for God so loved the world he gave us Jesus while we were still opposed to him. He gave us salvation. The heart of God towards believers, towards his people Israel, is a compassionate heart. And God could no longer endure the misery of his people, even though his anger was hot against them. God is mad at them. Yet his heart goes out to them. Consider that we have a high priest, Jesus. In Hebrews 7.25, we read the mission of Jesus, our high priest. Therefore, he is also able to save to the uttermost those who come to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. We have an intercessor. We have a priest in Jesus who is not only able to save, not only able to deliver us from the evil one, but he can endure to see us in misery with the guilt of sin upon us. It says Jesus ever lives to make intersections, intercession for those he loves, for those he has saved. 
And we see the compassionate heart of God here that he cannot stand by idle. He must act on behalf of Israel. Whenever we humble ourselves and repent, we touch the heart of God. It's the goodness of God that leads us to repentance. God, by his nature, must act on our behalf when he sees us repent. He's required to just because of who he is. What a gracious and loving God we have. Amen? Amen. Let me get you to stand. We'll close in prayer. Father God, we truly do not understand why you love us so much. But Lord, we read verses like this 16th verse in chapter 11. and You can't stand to see us miserable when we're repenting and turning to you. You must act on our behalf. And we see you over and over again in the Old Testament coming to Israel's rescue forgiving them after they sin grievously. After you've been very angry with them, you still go towards them. You reach out to them. And we thank you, Lord, for reaching out to us. I thank you for your great patience towards me. For, Lord, I, I sin and I sin repeatedly and you, you forgive. I thank you for that. Thank you for your great compassion towards all of us, Lord. May we be quick to repent and quick to turn away from the sin that offends you. We want to be serving you in spirit and in truth, Lord. So help us to do that. Help us to be pleasing to you with our lives, with our attitudes, with all that we do before you. And we do appreciate you in your loving kindness towards us. So we say thank you, Lord. And we say this in the name of Jesus. Amen.